today we're going to be continuing um, uh, the second part of a series of talks based in the letter of Ephesians in the Bible, which is a letter that um, was, it tells us in the first verse it was written by a chap called Paul, and it was written most probably to a bunch of churches, including the church in a place called Ephesus, which was um, a large, ancient, cosmopolitan city with people from lots of different um, backgrounds and religions. And the title of this series, we're calling it For This Reason. And that's a little phrase, for this reason. It crops up a couple of times in the letter. And it really kind of gives us a bit of a hint to the structure of the letter. Because if you read through Ephesians, the first couple of chapters are all about all the things that God has done for us. And then it kind of moves on to talk about the way that we can live in light of that, for this reason. And so this phrase, for this reason, it kind of acts like a hinge between the why and the what. And um, today we're going to move on from, John looked at the first chapter last week. Today we're going to move on to chapter two. And really the word, if there was a word for today in this chapter, it's the word reconciliation. That's what I want to talk about today. And we live in a world, don't we, that is deeply in need of reconciliation, a divided world. Um, we live in a war-torn planet. We're all aware of that at the moment. But there's ongoing bloodshed around the world, in Myanmar, Afghanistan, in Ethiopia and Sudan, and, of course, the war in, in Ukraine. Um, just this week at Men's Prayer, we were praying about the situation in Ukraine, and somebody was sharing how one of the charities that's, you know, sort of cl- collecting resources to take out their supplies, the things that they're trying to s- source at the moment are body bags and pregnancy kits. Pregnancy kits for the women that are being raped out there. And as a result of all of this conflict and division that's going on around the world, according to the UN, there are an estimated 30 million refugees and asylum seekers in the world right now. That's nearly half the population of the UK. The withdrawal of the Allied forces from Afghanistan last year, you remember that happened? There was a report about that this week basically declaring that situation to be a bit of a disaster that's likely cost many lives. And the charity Open Doors that work with the persecuted church tell us that Afghanistan is now the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian. It's also a difficult place to be a woman. And of course, in terms of race and ethnic division, just this Wednesday, it was two years since the murder of George Floyd which was a wake-up call, particularly to the Western world, about the issue of black-white racial division. And his death um, prompted institutions and individuals around the world to reflect and seek new pathways to peace and reconciliation. In fact, last week I was here um, sharing a little bit about our own journey with that as a church. And of course, whilst that's going on, we continue to live in a world where racial and ethnic division is still rife. Just last I think it was the week before last, 10 people were killed in the US in a racially motivated attack. And then there's gender inequality. Um, An example, um, there's a project in the UK, based in the UK, called Everyday Sexism Project. And it's like an online forum where women can go and post their experiences and their stories of sexism in the form of like street harassment, workplace discrimination, or violence. And over the last 10 years, they've collected more than 200,000 stories. These problems are disheartening, aren't they? And they're not caused by earthquakes, famines, or natural disasters, are they? They've got something in common. The problem is people. They're caused by the discord and the division 
between human hearts. We live in a world that's affected by a divided humanity, desperately in need of reconciliation between races, gender, peoples. It might be that you're here today and there's a situation in your life where reconciliation is needed, a relationship or a community where there's pain and division. If any of that applies to you or as we reflect on this big picture, the thing I want to try and do today is offer some encouragement by looking at this passage that really highlights that we worship a God who specialises in reconciliation, a God whose goal is reconciliation with us. I mean, he, he died on a cross so that we might be reconciled to him, but also whose goal is reconciliation for us and even through us. And those are the things that we're going to look at today. And as unbelievable as it may seem in light of this terrible picture that's going on in the world today, I want to suggest that for us as the church, you know, when we look at everything that's going on in the world and we're tempted to say, you know, where can we find peace? Where can we find reconciliation? It's a little bit like a person saying, where are my glasses? Has anyone seen my glasses? When they're sat upon their head. And if you don't believe me, I'd encourage you, just look at Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to look at verse 1 to start with. Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. The word you in this passage, by the way, is, is plural. He's talking like you lot. Um, and he continues a little bit further on. He says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. But because of his great love for us. I don't know if you've ever um, experienced division in your own life, if you've ever been part of a bitter family feud, if you've ever you know, watched a marriage breakdown or been part of that, or you know, been subjected to abuse, you will know that there is a very special kind of heartache that's associated with relational breakdown. But the truth is that nobody knows that heartache. Nobody's experienced it more than God himself, separated from all of his children by their sins. But as it says in this passage, but because of his great love for us, demonstrated on the cross, he found a way. He found a way to reconciliation, not just between us and him, but also reconciliation for us to heal the divides between us too. I don't know if you've ever um, read any, if you, any, any fans of Christian biographies. Does anybody like reading Christian biographies? They're great fun, aren't they? My favourite one is Corrie Ten Boom. And I love, in particular, the things that move me most are the stories of forgiveness and reconciliation that you find in, across the church. Uh, Corrie, um, for example, she, she forgave the brutal Nazi um, concentration camp warden who'd tormented her family during the war. Or stories like a lady called Mary, John Mary Johnson, you may have heard her story. She got to know the man who murdered her son while he was in prison for 17 years. And she, she, she formed a relationship. She, she ended up forgiving him. And she actually helped him prepare for his release and reintegration into society. Um, and she made arrangements for him to move in next door to her. And they became friends. Amazing. Or you might have heard the story of um, a famous um, Christian speaker called Joyce Mayer. She had um, a terrible upbringing. She was sexually abused as a child by her father. And her mother lacked the courage to intervene. Um, and so, you know, that was a, a horrific thing. But in, in adult life, 
Having come to faith, she found the strength to honor them. And she ended up buying them a home near her where she could look after them into their old age. And eventually one day, as an old man, her father broke down before her in repentance. And she not only found the strength to give him forgiveness, she also then led him to faith in Jesus. I mean, it's just, these are impossible stories, aren't they? Stories that demonstrate that God's love has the power, not just to heal the divide between him and us, but also even the most bitter wounds between us. And this dynamic is, we know it's true because it's the heritage of the church um, and the, pas- the heritage of the, the context that this passage was written into. At the time of writing Ephesians, um, there, was a real, there was this long-standing bitter division in that part of the world between the Jewish people and basically everybody else who they referred to as the Gentiles because a massive part of Jewish culture was, was living a wholly separate lives um, to the people around them. And, um, you know, we can read in first century Greek and Roman writings, there was, an, there was a hostility towards the Jewish people from the culture around. For example, you know, they, would, they were, they, they, they were labelled as lazy because they had a Sabbath. Um, the fact that they refused to worship Roman gods was, was seen as unpatriotic to the Roman Empire. The fact that they would only eat certain foods was a joke. It was mocked. And, of course, worse than this, um, this period was punctuated by instances where these tensions flared up and into these like Jewish uprisings where they, they violently tried to overthrow the Roman Empire. And one, one of these, for example, in Galilee in 4 BC, so very contemporary to this writing of this, a Roman general, Varus, crucified 2,000 Jewish rebels. So that was the context but as the, the church began, the message from, from, from the writers of the New Testament was that division has got to go now. In verse 12, um, at this point, he's speaking particularly to Gentile believers, so people not from Jewish backgrounds. In verse 12, he says, um, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And when it talks there about um, the dividing wall, um, that's not just a metaphor, by the way. There was literally a wall in the Jewish temple um, around it. And um, there's a picture here. And this, this is a, one of the few surviving artefacts from that temp, the temple in Jerusalem at that time. And this was a warning sign that was mounted on the wall that said to foreigners, to Gentiles, if you come any closer, if you try and come any closer into the worship space, you will be responsible for your own death. Can you imagine if we put a sign on the car park and say, like, non-Christians, danger of death. Those batons that we give the car parking team. Oof. There was a very real hostility and divide between the Jewish people and those outside. But Paul is explaining it's time, it's time for that to go. He says, um, verse 14, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, um, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. 
So do you see he's describing and proposing an almost inconceivable ethnic reconciliation. And this is how the church was birthed. This is our history. The last couple of years, you know, we've been on our own journey, as, 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 as we know, of growing in our understanding of racial discord in this country, in our society, and even in this church. And um, during that time, there have been lots of conversations. Hearts have changed. Trust has been forged and reforged. It's been, it's been wonderful. But it's also been disheartening at times during the last couple of years to discover that, you know, the deeper you go into this conversation about race, um, the more division and the more pain you find, particularly in terms, in this country, the legacy and the history of black and white people and the scars and issues of social injustice that are still present generations on from colonialism. And for me, it's been, it's been a reality check to be part of conversations in this church and hear a whole range of different views on this, on this issue, to hear you know, some people with their experience saying, you know, I don't really have any hope of, of meaningful change. I feel like I've been here before. This feels like more of the same. And then on the other hand, to hear people say things like, oh, I don't, really, I don't really see this issue. I don't really get it. I don't think we've got a race problem in this country. There isn't really any need to change. And then, and then a whole range of views everywhere in between. And as I say, it's been sobering to hear these different experiences and views and wonder how can we as a church reconcile all of these views and forge a way forward. But in the midst of that, we can take heart that the church, the global church, the worldwide body of Christ, a people that is today, a people of every tribe and nation, was forged 2,000 years ago in the midst of a bitter ethnic conflict. You know, just when this was written, even what we're doing, even this here today, if you think about it, would have blown their minds. You know, when Paul, when Paul's talking about, you know, people who are, who are far coming near by the blood of Christ, at that point, this island was just a soggy little island on the other side of the world full of pagans that nobody really knew anything about, that the Romans had only just invaded. And the thought that in 2,000 years' time, the inhabitants of that island would have been brought near by this message of Jesus, by the blood of Christ, and be worshipping here together. And just look, at the, just look around and look at the diversity in this room. It's a miracle of reconciliation. And it shows that reconciliation, it's our heritage, it's our inheritance. The glasses are on our head. We only need to just put them on because we are the reconciliation people. And the gospel of Jesus has the power to reconcile the most bitter divides. You know, a story, a story that, that really you know, struck me was um, relating to the fallout of the genocide in Rwanda. You, may, you know, in 1994, a horrific situation where in the space of 100 days, 800,000 um, Rwandans, mostly Tutsis, were killed, many of whom by their neighbours from the Hutu tribe, um, due to these intertribal um, division that was stoked generations before by European colonialists. And it just left the nation shattered. Um, but in the, the sort of the, the fallout of that, um, there was lots of efforts to, to rebuild. And one charity, a Christian charity called World Vision, who, who try and take the love of Jesus into um, broken places and start reconciliation and, and peace building initiatives. They went in and um, a couple of guys 
who part of that program were these two men called Andrew and Calixt. They had previously been friends, neighbours, um, from different tribes, but in the frenzy of the genocide, um, Calixt was part of a group who had killed Andrew's wife's entire family, and he'd gone to prison, but they, 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 they began to talk through this program, and in the words of World Vision, it says, their relationship slowly yielded to faith and forgiveness. And that's them now. Just, just look at that photo and just think for a second how impossible that is. It's a miracle, isn't it? If God can do that, he can reconcile the world. He wants reconciliation with us and for us and even through us. And that's the final thing I want to talk about. Now, this, this little bit here could be either the best or the worst illustration ever, depending on how you, you, know, how you go down. But back in the 1980s, if you were around, you'll remember that some genius took a keyboard and they took a guitar and they made the keytar. Do you remember that? And my personal ambition is to see a keytar on this stage at some point. I want to see that happen. But um, I may be sort of over-egging the illustration, but, th- but through this miraculous reconciliation of two incompatible things, a whole new category of musical instrument was birthed that revolutionised music in a new and wonderful way. Have that picture in mind as we read... It's a stretch, isn't it? 2.15. <laughs> Listen to this. By setting aside the flesh in the law, it's the commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. God has achieved something in the birth of the church that's even more amazing than a kitar. He has taken the people of Israel, the holy people of God, with all of the Old Testament scriptures and promises, and with all of their failures and shortcomings, and then he's taken the rest of humanity broken as they are, but but nonetheless made in God's image. And out of the two, he has created a new humanity called the Christian. The church is a new humanity. And so when we come to Christ, you know, we talk about being born again. We're born again, yes, as a new creation, as a new person, but also collectively we are born into a people, a whole new species that Paul describes as a new humanity. And it's through this species this new humanity that God is enacting something like a, a, a creation do-over where all of the, you know, the division in the world between all the different people and tribes that was part really of the un, sort of unravelling tragedy of the fall depicted in Genesis, he's reversing all of that through the church. It started at the cross. It burst into life on the day of Pentecost when people from all around the world came to Jesus. It continued as the dividing wall of hostility broke down between the Jewish people and the Gentile. And it's grown over 2,000 years to include people all over the world. One body with one united purpose. And we're part of that. We're part of God's plan to reconcile this divided world. A friend of ours, um, a pastor called Owen Hilton, he says, to reconcile himself to all things... God has given us the task of taking the message of reconciliation to the world. Reconciliation is part of our mandate. And, um, you know, skipping on a little bit down into um, chapter 3, Paul kind of continues and he explains this. He says that his intent, his intent, God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God 
should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose. Now, there's quite a lot of sort of Bible language in that verse there. I'm just going to leave that there um, and listen to the way N.T. Wright, he's a Bible scholar, he explains this. He says, this verse is one of the New Testament's most powerful statements for the reason for the church's existence. He says, the rulers, in heaven, the rulers and authorities must be confronted with God's wisdom in all its rich variety. And this is to happen, how? Through the church. Not so much through what the church says, although that's important, but, but through what the church is. Namely, a community in, in which men, women, and children of every race, colour, social and cultural background come together in glad worship of one true God. See, the, the, the universe that we're living in is moving one day at a time closer to the day when this age will end. And on that day, all things in heaven and earth will either be reconciled to God as part of his new recreation, his eternal recreation, or forever separated from him. And as that continues, as each day unfolds, the devil and his servants, they're, they're, they're watching over this, and they're doing their best to cause division and discord through wars and prejudice and inequality. But each day, he has to watch as God's wisdom pushes back through his people, the church. He has to watch as each day God's kingdom of peace pushes back and advances through the church. He has to watch as something as evil and terrible as war stimulates the Christian church to get down on its knees around the world and call out to God for peace and release him to act. He has to watch as something as terrible as a racially motivated murder catalyzes Christians everywhere to embark on a journey of, of reflection and repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. And he has to watch as the tragedy and injustice of gender inequality around the world prompts Christian men to live distinctively and instead to empower and lay down their lives for their wives the way the Bible tells them to. And as Christian men and brothers and fathers do everything they can to love and champion their sisters and their daughters and their friends. The glasses are on our head. So, a few thoughts just before we go about how we can apply this to our, you know, in our lives. How we can be the reconciliation people. First, we need to fight for the unity of the church, I believe. Jesus said, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Divided, we're weak, but together, we're strong. And this is why the devil, he, um, he knows this. And this is why he spends so much energy trying to cause division, especially in the church. And he's always looking for that chink in the armour, that place where he can kind of like prize us off one at a time and pick us off. He's looking for, you know, that friction or that miscommunication here or that misunderstanding there. He's, he's whispering to us, you know, oh, they, that person, you don't belong here. Um, you don't fit in. Nobody would notice if you weren't here. He's whispering, you know, oh, that, that, that person, they don't really like you or you can't really trust them. He's whispering these lies to try and break us apart. I don't know if you've ever had a thought like that flash through your head in church. In a moment, we're going to take a moment as we go into ministry time to just reflect on those things and do what the Bible tells us, to take those thoughts captive, to bring them before the Holy Spirit and ask him for the grace and the guidance and the wisdom 
to seek unity in that situation or in that relationship. That's the first thing. We're going to fight for unity. The second thing, be part of the solution. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that he, he describes the God who reconciled us to himself through Christ also gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It's it's a good thing for us to consider. Is there a place? Is there a relationship? Is there a situation or a cause where God is sending us to go and be a reconciler? And I'd encourage you to reflect on that in just a moment. And finally, as we consider reconciliation, we're to look to the cross. We're to look to the cross. Because the reality is that reconciliation is costly and it's impossible in our own strength. You know, and I appreciate that There'll be people in this room, there'll be people watching online who have lived through experiences that make you far more qualified to talk about the cost of reconciliation than me. People who've experienced abuse, people who've experienced, um, you know, perhaps you've been in different, you've lived in different countries where racism is violent and brutal. Or perhaps you've been part of, um, you know, betrayal or relational breakdowns that are horrific. Understand that it's costly. But um, somebody who does understand that is Desmond, Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop who led the Truth and Reconciliation Committee in South Africa. And he talked, about, he talked about it like this. He said, forgiving and being reconciled to our enemies or our loved ones are not about pretending that things are other than they are. It's not about patting one another on the back and turning a blind eye to the wrong. True reconciliation exposes the awfulness, the abuse, the hurt, the truth. It could sometimes even make things even worse. It's a risky thing undertaking, but in the end, it's worthwhile. Because in the end, only an honest confrontation with reality can bring real healing. Superficial reconciliation brings superficial healing. Reconciliation isn't cheap. But more than anyone, God knows this. He knows this because he, he gave it all for the sake of reconciliation on the cross. And this is why all of these conversations, whatever situation we're seeking reconciliation for, the cross is our navigation point. It's our wayfinder. The path to reconciliation and the peace of Jesus that lies the other side runs through the cross. Because as Paul says, he himself is our peace. And so if you have a situation in your life where breakthrough is only going to come if there's forgiveness... Or, you know, the the deadlock won't be broken unless there is repentance. Look to the cross. Look to the cross. Because that's the place, the cross is the place where all repentance ultimately leads. And it's the place from which all forgiveness ultimately flows. So. Fight for unity. Be part of the solution. And look to the cross.